0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com.
1: Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at Verdandeartheducators.com.
0: This podcast is being recorded on August eleventh, 2023. Kristen Pollen completed her Bachelor of Science degree in biology at Ryder University. After university, she took an internship position at Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. The internship focused on all research aspects of the public garden from tissue culture to new plant evaluation and selection. Kristen has been with the new plant department at Star Roses and Plants Since 2011, she previously managed domestic and international trialing of woody plants before accepting her current role as woody ornamental portfolio manager, where she coordinates the development, launch, and market evaluation of all new trees, shrubs, and edible plants. Kristen also manages the Bushel and Berry brand for star roses and plants. A premium brand program of plants that provide both edible and ornamental uses for the home garden. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees
2: podcast, Kristen. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to talk about trees. It'll be fun. It's really exciting to
0: have a star rose person on the podcast. Kristen, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you wound up in your position,
2: what your background is? Sure, I can talk a bit about that. So I'm currently the Woody Ornamental Portfolio Manager for Star Roses, which means I manage anything that's not a rose or a perennial. So it's a big uh, range of products. But my background is actually in biology. I originally went to school to be a forensic scientist and kind of stumbled into plants from having a love for it. So mine was not the direct route as you hinted at. And in college I did undergraduate research in plant science. And from there I did a research internship at Longwood Gardens for about a year. Um, And from there I went straight to STAR and I've been with STAR for about 12 years now.
0: I want to point out to our listeners that Kennet Square, where Longwood Gardens is, is a, is a little mecca there where there's a lot of growers in that area. And uh, Star is not too far from where Longwood Gardens is.
2: Right. It's only about 15 minutes uh, down Route 1 there. Um, so they're really close by, convenient. <laughs> yep, very convenient.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Star Roses as a company? When did they get started and how long have they been around?
2: Sure, so Star Roses is a pretty old company. All things considered they started in 1897 and started primarily as a rose company so they started under the name Connard and jones company and it was right around when people were just starting to have roses in their own home gardens um, and from there they kind of pioneered a bunch of firsts in the industry you know they were the first to guarantee uh safe delivery of their product to all post offices of the u.s they were the first to guarantee that the product would bloom Um, And they were also among the first to file for horticultural trademarks. uh, First Star Roses was the first. And then also they were one of the first to patent new roses in the United States. And it's not always been roses. So, you know, even in 1970, they introduced the blue and china hollies, which were bred by Kathleen Meserve. And those have been touted as pretty much one of the best ornamental plants introductions in that decade. Um, And people still use them today. You know, from there, we switched from being a finishing nursery to more of an intellectual property company. So we're really focused on creating, developing, testing, and bringing new plants to market and managing supply chain of young plant inputs. So we provide young inputs and our grower customers are the ones that finish them.
0: I think it's really fascinating that Connor Pyle and Star Roses had such a vision. They had such a Big vision for their company. And of course, as you mentioned all these firsts, what always intrigued me is that they always saw something in a plant. They look for plants and they, they saw something in plants that other people didn't see. And as you're talking about the blue hollies, that was one, but also a lot of the junipers, our native junipers that they latched onto, non-native and native, and really made them stars. Uh, before people were doing native
2: plants. Right, and I think that's always kind of been at the core of what's been at the business of Star Roses and Conard Pile is looking for the best and making sure that what we're bringing to market is something that's going to work for not only our customers, the growers, but also the end consumers, so homeowners, landscapers. Um, and I think by really looking for that, it's led to some interesting finds
0: Yes, I I would totally agree with that. And, you know, the name goes very far. And of course, you have affiliates in France that you work with. Was it the Milan Roses that your company works with as well?
2: Uh, Yes, yep. Mayon has been a very longtime partner. So Star Roses is the master licensee for Mayon Genetics in the North America. And also more recently with uh, Cordis, we are the licensee for North America for their plants as well.
0: Wow, that's exciting too.
1: Can you walk us through that process that uh, plants go through to get selected for the tree program? And uh, coming up, we're going to talk about some of these really cool sounding new introductions, but what's involved there?
2: Sure. So there's two different routes a plant could take to come to us. So we have internal breeding that we have breeders that work for STAR that work on a variety of genera, some tree genera included. But then we also work with a fair amount of independent breeders. So breeders from around the world or domestically that find something new, like Will Radler, and come to us saying, you know, I think I've got something. So Once we make that connection and they supply us with some starter plants, everything starts at our trial facility in West Grove, Pennsylvania. So we'll either receive young plant inputs, liners, cuttings, or mature tree um, or shrub from the breeder. Uh, The first step is to run it through propagation trials. So if we're specifically talking about trees, our location in West Grove isn't set up for tree production unless it's a liner but we work with growers around the country that can do uh, grafting, budding, all the different sorts of propagation methods you might need for a new tree. So we rely on them heavily with new products. So we'll send them budwood from the stock plants we maintain in West Grove, and they will build up to a trial sample distribution, which is usually 100 to 200 plants. And from there, we will distribute those plants to not only back to ourselves in Pennsylvania, but to national trials. So we'll run container tests, we'll run in-ground tests, and those are usually partnered with either universities or public gardens, and then also large-scale production partners, so large-scale tree customers. And that test, depending on the genera, uh, at the shortest will probably run for about two years. And we're collecting feedback through all that process. So we're collecting pictures. We're collecting personal feedback. Do you think this plant's going to work for your area? Do you think it's different than what's out there? Why or why not? Um, We're also visiting these test sites too, throughout the trials. If all of that goes well, then we will move to introduction. So in terms of timeline, from the time a plant comes to us, to the time the introduction decision is made, on average, it's four to six years. And then there could be some additional time tacked onto that depending on what we set the launch number at. So you know, it's going to be a very different timeline if we say we want 100,000 trees as opposed to we want to start with 10,000. And our our suppliers will handle that and they'll do the buildup and then we'll launch it to the market via our catalog and our other sales channels.
0: I think that one of the things that... um... People might not realize is that you have to be very savvy about your numbers because if your plant is really happening and people love (laughs) it, you better have enough plants in the background to be able to (laughs) supply it. Otherwise,
2: your program will fall flat on its face, right? That is very true. And you know, be completely honest, we have launched some where we didn't have enough. And You know, it always seems to be a guessing game, even when I ask, you know, other people in the industry, well, how do you pick your launch number? It's like, "Mm, well, you kind of (laughs) just guess and go with your gut. Uh, But we have a whole uh, committee at STAR that works on questions like that. And it spans across all of our departments from sales to marketing to the new product development. So by the time those four to six years are passed, we generally have a good idea depending on hardiness zone and the hype we've been getting from the growers, how much the plant is going to sell. If it's going to be a game changer, it's going to be a typical of the genus.
1: So is there some consumer research that goes along with that? I mean, is, we'll, we'll be getting to this list in a, in a minute, Kristen, but it seems like red buds are very popular. Do you go into it kind of having a sense that the public is ready to gobble up red buds of every color and
2: shade? We definitely look at it from the point of, does the consumer know this genus? If the answer is no, that doesn't rule it out completely, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just going to be a heavier lift to educate the consumer so that they know how to take care of it, where it's going to do well. And there are certain things that they know very well like Circus, that you know, we can go heavy on and we know that there'll be interest out there. The native aspect plays into it a little bit too. You know, Redbuds, we have the Eastern Redbuds native to north, the Northeast, and then we also have the tech census down into Texas and into the Southwest. So that has been playing a role and we've been hearing more of that in most recent years.
0: Well, I think that's really fascinating because when the city does their planning, I know Hal and I both have worked for tree tenders, A lot of people pick Redbud, the species, for their street tree because it's a small tree and it could fit under power lines. They're actually Mm -hmm. doing advertising for you. Um, (laughs) You know, I had stopped my car a couple times this spring. I mean, I came to like a screeching halt. Good thing there was nobody behind me. I I did look at my rearview mirror, though. (laughs) with Appalachian Red. And I I just, and you know, there were other cars that stopped too because they were so exceptionally beautiful. You know, once people see it and they know it and they find out, oh yeah, the flowers are edible, the little green pods before they get really hard are edible, you know, all those wonderful things about it. And it's fantastic. And it almost gives you a little bit of an edge into the market where people are looking for something different.
2: Right. And I think, you know, there's the other option too. And it's like a landscaper probably put that there, right? Or the city planner. We were talking about that a little bit earlier, kind of with Knockout, where there's the other route. If the landscapers know what it is, and they're specking it in, eventually a consumer is going to, like you said, at 500 500 yards stop and go, what's that? And then it kind of picks up its own life from there. And
0: that's probably the best
2: compliment
0: that any A breeder can
2: have when
0: someone, you know, stops to look at it and just marvels at either the fall color, the beautiful color of the leaves during the regular growing season, because we have a lot of different colors now, Uh, especially when forest pansy first came out, that purple leaf, oh my gosh, but the orange fall color, that was really (laughs) stunning because the red bud usually has a yellow fall color. So those kind of things are are very exciting, and it must be very gratifying for your company to get that kind of feedback with the plants that you're you're introducing.
2: Yeah, it definitely is, and I think it's also a big you know compliment to the breeding that was going on through Denny Werner and North Carolina State. I mean, they just brought so much diversity into the Cercis genera that we could come out with these multiple introductions in the same class in a relatively short period of time. Because they are truly unique and different from one another. Like you mentioned, foliage colors, habit sizes, just different uses, even, you know, different flower forms. So that's been really fun to watch.
1: And are they shaking out to be uh, a tougher Circus, the uh, Texansis?
2: Oh, the texensis. yes.
1: Yeah, is that shaking out to be having a little more urban hardiness? Uh, the couple that I've seen look tremendous in terms of what I suspect is a little more tolerance to heat and dryness.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the tech census that we're introducing in 2024, called Gilded Hearts, has definitely shown to be more resilient in terms of that heat, full sun and drought conditions. So that's gone through you know full sun tests in Israel, at Louisiana State University. At some growers in Texas, and that's come through completely unscathed. So we haven't seen any burn. Yeah, it's really great, especially that it's a yellow foliage variety. On top of all that, yeah. So I mean, you're just asking for burn in that situation, but this one's come through rock solid. And then on the flip side, it's also been hardy up to zone five for us. So we haven't lost, you know, that hardiness into up the colder zones too.
0: That's fabulous. That's exciting, and you know. Yep. I have to tell our listeners, I happen to have been to your, I guess, your open house days. And mm-hmm. I was I, I was shell-shocked when I saw these Syracis, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the, sh- on the podcast. I stopped in my tracks because your company is addressing a size of tree that can fit into a small space in a city setting. Which I think is so important for our listeners. If you can't have a big tree on your front lawn, you could have it in the, the back or on your patio or other places that are for small trees.
2: Yeah, so I think you you got a sneak peek at our new introductions, which are the garden gem sources, the compact ones. Yes. So those have been generating a lot of interest, and you're absolutely spot on. I mean, they can fit in three gallon, five gallon, you know, up to, I think we've had them in, you know, 15 to 25 gallon deco containers for pushing on four to five years. And they're really staying patio size. So you could have a native spring blooming tree on your patio for people that don't have a garden space. And we tend to look at them kind of like you would use Japanese maples, too, because they have that small stature. We have two foliage colors right now. We have green and a burgundy in the series. And then you also get that it's a native. So for the consumer, it checks a lot of boxes. And then for the grower, it's also faster to finish than a Japanese maple. It's a cheaper input. Uh, So it's going to be more economical for them to produce and sell on their side as well.
0: Well, and I also have to bring up, you know, the Doug Tallamy conversation because Circe's attracts a lot of pollinators. And maybe our listeners don't know that. Maybe they do, but it's in the, in the bean family and it certainly attracts. I've seen bumblebees around these little cuties like nobody's business, like. With even the straight species where you get you get a whole range of pollinators that come to the tree. So I, I think that's an important component of it too. Even though most of the time peas are self-pollinating, but they're around there and they smell good too.
2: Yeah, we've definitely seen that in our trials as well. Um, and the ones I've brought home too. It's one of those things with that early season bloom on it. I feel like the pollinators, you know, they're just waking up. There's limited things to pick from too. So it's great to add that to the garden and give them something for that time of year.
0: And those of you who are who like to have something to eat, I mean, I've used Cirrusus canadensis many times, just dipped in egg whites and rolled in sugar and let them harden and put them on birthday cakes and all kinds of other, um, you know, decoration kind of things. But they are edible and they're very high in vitamin C as a flower. You can put them on top of salads and things like that, which is nice because if you don't have anything else in your garden that's edible, these are.
2: Oh. Wow. Yeah, I feel like they just have the checklist of benefits on these uh-huh. plants is just goes on for a while. So you really can't go wrong with them. I mean, and then you have all the different sizes and colors to pick from too.
0: So well, and and more than and you could have more than one in your backyard.
2: Yes. <laughs> if you have a big backyard. You can have a, a lot
0: of them. And I, I think it was at Longwood Gardens. I was I was walking through and there were people behind me and I had to stop. I took a picture because there were, the whole understory of the woodland was filled with red buds. There were white ones and pink ones and you know the ones with the new yellowy leaves coming on. And everybody behind me just stopped and you could hear all the cameras clicking because <laughs> they were looking at the same thing I was. And it was gorgeous, and especially this past year, it seemed like a lot of the the trees that have been planted more recently are coming into their own, and the visuals even along the highways are have been really exceptional.
2: Yeah, that's where I've seen it too. Is I, I I've seen it on the highway, just growing along the side of the road, and it just stands out even among you know everything that's going on in that underbrush there. I just wanted to point out too, like you said, you could have a lot in your yard if you had the space. If you do have a smaller yard, you could still plant the garden gems because they only get up to about eight to 10 feet at maturity. So they're about half the size of the typical circes. So if you have a small plot of land, they'd be great for that too. Right.
1: One thing I wanted to share since it's turning into a red blood appreciation hour, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, a favorite little Portion of my neighborhood, I think it was just a homeowner kind of getting lucky with planting out a couple street trees on either side of the sidewalk. But red buds really do a great job casting shade, you know, and we tend to write, oh, small tree, minimal effect. But it's actually between the homeowner planted two or three red buds and two or three Japanese maples on either side of the sidewalk. And they're both, like you say, about eight to 10 feet. And they do a marvelous job. In fact, they've created a tunnel of of shade, which arguably, you know, the big London plane that's lifting your sidewalk and leaning out over the street, you know, is not is not going to give you that. And I guess from the other pragmatic standpoint for the homeowner is, you know, here it is August in Philadelphia, and we've had a week of straight line winds and two rather Dramatic weather events, and they're going to be a lot less likely to, you know, split in half and have a a great expense in terms of pruning or uh, cleanup in the event of complete failure. So, another thumbs up endorsement for them. This is is really fun.
2: Yeah, they have a beautiful branching structure if you, you know, take the time to look closely. But it's funny you mentioned those storms because, you know, we're about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. We got hit pretty bad with that same storm and we always evaluate for that for the strength of the branch unions on the cercus because there have been some introductions in the past that people have complained to us about right trying to improve so these plants have come through our fields in West Grove Pennsylvania they've gone through those crazy storms and we haven't had any breaking on them even the smaller ones that have you know a denser branching structure they've come through completely unscathed that's wonderful that's wonderful to hear yeah, and you know, I mean, Bradford is notorious for it, but there's uh, definitely tons of other trees that you'd have to do cleanup on after that kind of weather event. Right, right. So
0: let's talk about these little guys that you have here on the list. And um, we're looking at a list to our listeners. We we have a, a list of uh, several cerasus that are coming out in 2024. Is that correct,
2: Christian? The ones that we're looking at. Uh, so it's a mix. So the first two are 2024. So the garden gems, the compact ones we talked about. Right. And then Gilded Hearts, that heat tolerant Tech Census is coming out in 24. Okay. And then the other ones have been in our program for a couple years going strong now. Flamethrower. Yep. Was kind of a breakthrough in the genera. I I'm sure you've seen that one.
0: Oh my gosh, I can't keep my eyes off that one.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's got the multi colors on one branch. Looks like it has fall foliage color all year round. So it's got the deep burgundy when it comes out first, and then it ages to oranges and yellows, and then eventually light green. And it's the typical size surces. So, you know, depending on where it's planted and the trimming on the tree, it can get up to that 20 to 25 foot span. And that one's come through hardiness tests and, you know, minimal leaf burn in some of the high heat production settings. It also won the Chelsea Flower Show in 2021, and it was People's Choice Award at Far West in 2019. So it's been on the market since 2019, and we actually have this going into the consumer trade now. So it's available online. It's also available. I've seen it in the big box change and at IGC. So consumers should start seeing this one as well.
0: Well, I saw it in a, in a landscape and I'm trying to think where it was. And the first thing I did was I whipped down my camera and took a photo of it. And I used it for a presentation. Everybody was like, what? Where did you where did you see that at? And I told them where I saw it. And they just couldn't believe it. We're, we're going out and buying one right now. So that one there seems to be uh, like the love of everybody's life, you know. But Golden Golden Falls is a really beautiful one too. And I've seen that around in many places i mean if you can't have a water feature that's a really nice way to suggest water cascading over maybe a group of rocks or in an area where you want something smaller but yet creeping and draping
2: yeah i really like that one too because you know i was surprised at how narrow it stays compared to some of the other weepers on the market yes So where I've seen it and really liked it is, you know, flanking like doorways or walkways. So we sent one to Longwood and they had it in their research plots and they had it, you know, right next to flanking the door to their research station. And you're right, it just cascades and looks like that ripple water effect. Um, And same with that one, a yellow foliage variety, but one that's really tough and vigorous. It's going to fill out the skirt really well and then it's not going to have a lot of damage to the foliage on it.
0: Right. Again, it's not something you have to spend a lot of time caring over either. When you put it in the garden, it does its thing and just kind of leave it alone.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I just kind of let it let it sprawl and do its thing.
0: Yeah. Now tell us a little bit about the Carolina Sweetheart Circus. I'm not a little, I'm not as familiar with that one.
2: So that one was actually bred by um, Tom Rainey and that oh, one yeah. was one of our first Circus introductions. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different, in that the impact of this one is that it has variegated white, pink, green, and red foliage in the spring.
0: Oh, okay. I have seen it then. Okay.
2: Yeah. But after spring, it kind of fades. So after spring, it looks typical green with like a little bit of red tip foliage on it. And, you know, it's good to talk about this one because we do get calls about this sometime where people are worried, you know, that the colors change. They're like, what's wrong with, you know, my Carolina sweetheart? Ah, uh, but it's just—it's really a spring show on mm. that plant, um, and then the rest of the time you get the typical foliage color.
0: I do know that the 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 one that the variegated green and white, uh, the alley cat, is took the area by storm too, which is not, probably not your plant, but um, it just gave people a different visual for them to to. So I'm sure this one here is even more exciting because it has the pink in it.
2: Yeah, and it's it's really showy in the spring. That pink color just pops in the cooler temperatures during the spring. Right. Um, and then it ages to that, like you said, white to green, and then it eventually mm-hmm. ages to the green foliage. What's the fall color on that one? That one's about the typical color. So that yellow kind of little bit of orange in it, but not much. Right. It's yeah, not not quite gold,
0: but a little has a little touch of orange. Yeah. Yes. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm. That one um, out of all of the ones here is actually a slightly uh, less moderate uh, it's more of a moderate grower so it's gonna not reach that you know 20 foot height as quickly as some of the other ones and I think that just comes as being you know kind of a side effect of a variegated plant
0: right they're a little bit slower and shorter and a whole host of things with variegated plants yeah yep
1: yeah so if you'll forgive me I'd, lo- I'd love to jump ahead on this list because meta sequoia is one of the podcasts favorite trees that comes up <laughs> quite a bit in conversation. What can you tell us about Amber Glow Metasequoia?
2: I'm glad it's your podcast favorite because it's one of my favorites too. <laughs> I love Metasequoia. It's actually an interesting story, at least for me. When the Amber Glow Metasequoia first came into the trial program, the breeder told us I have a compact Metasequoia for you. Um, Hmm. And my initial reaction was, what's compact for a (laughs) Metasequoia? Yeah, right. Right. Uh, (laughs) And how long are we going to have to watch it to know, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But so it was touted as being compact and as being a gold foliage variety that's an improvement over the old variety Ogon. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yes. Mm. Ogon kind of Tennessee and into the south on the tops of the needles, it tends to get like it'll turn white, it'll bleach and it'll burn. Amber Glow has really held up its golden foliage all the way into the south in the high heat and no burn on this. So you're going to wow, have that. that's great. Yeah, that true color. So you don't get any of that kind of like summertime sad <laughs> looking to the plant. And it actually is compact. So I've had it in the ground from a three gallon since about 2015. And, you know, it was going along normal and going strong. And I'm like, all right, it might just keep going. But it hit about 40 feet. And all of a sudden, the leader stopped going up as much the top got more rounded and it hadn't lost its leader. You know, we had checked to make sure that it was still there, but it's kind of just hung around at that like 35 to 40 foot since 2015.
0: Wow. So, for our listeners, in case you're not familiar with Metasequoia, it's a dawn redwood. And th- this tree can get to be, what, well, 100, 150 feet tall and out yeah. here. So, having something 30 and 40 feet is pretty miraculous. That's small. That's very small. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, these these plants are, again, we're talking about smaller spaces that they can go in. And it's really nice. And I would imagine it's narrower, too, than the straight species. Is that correct?
2: little bit narrower, uh, but it actually does a really good job of filling out its branching more Mm -hmm. than the straight species that I've seen. Right. So it has a really nice full pyramidal look to it at all stages of production. Oh, that's nice. Like even in a three gallon, it just looked like a perfect little Christmas tree. Wow. Full, you couldn't see through it. And then it gets the typical fall orange color before the needles drop. So, you, know, you can use it as a bear Christmas tree in your house, right? <laughs> <laughs> you could. If that's fitting with your theme, you definitely could. <laughs> oh, that's that's
0: nice. I'm glad you brought that one up, Hal.
1: Yeah, I'll look forward to, to seeing it. I think uh, we've heard so many good, again, practical standpoints from a preservation and uh, lower maintenance costs. Type species, and that sequoia, I think, remains at the top of the list.
0: Well, it's also wind tolerant too. Um, right. it's one of the most. Right. According to Ed Gilman, it's one of the most. Between that and the taxodium, are the most resilient. Resilient and and 170 yeah. mile an hour winds. I mean, our winds have been stronger than ever before too. So you think about those straight line winds coming through. Oh, 170 miles, we can handle that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. and i don't remember exactly like where i saw the story at but you know in one of these recent storms that went through it wasn't here i think it was farther down the coast to the south but there'd been like devastating winds had gone through and like destroyed homes then someone had their house like ringed in on three sides by the meta sequoia and it looked just untouched amid this like destruction so wow. i don't know if they've done any studies you know actually using it as like a screening plant but it might be worth looking into. Well,
0: you know, we had a house up here where our tornado hit us by Temple University. And there was a house there that had the, it was a like a triangle property that's triangular in shape. And they had meta sequoias all around them. It must've been about 40 or 50 metasequoias around the house. Everything around there was all torn, taken out across the street, not this house. Everything was perfect. The trees were still standing there. It was like nothing happened around it. So we were kind of asking Ed Gilman about that and he said it's you know it's very possible that the shape of the tree and and its resilience um and and the the lack of heavy weight I think on the branches is another thing the foliage is very thin the needles are you know you don't have a lot of sail with the uh, tree itself so it might it right. might very well be from a physics standpoint might be that
1: I'm thinking about presentations I've Seen over the years by the scientists that are grounded in physics, and I think that they would concur with that. That Mm -hmm. straight line winds, or even the startup of a tornado, though some of those winds are going to be diffused by Mm -hmm. multiple branches and hundreds and hundreds of needles. I think Kristen raises a good point. You know, we talk about assisted migration and choosing plants in a heating heated up world, but There's also the landscape design component. You know, it really might be on to something of just a heavy mix of taxodium, metasequoia, and, you know, I don't know, a few other columnars. And then, of course, uh, a dozen gilded heart (laughs) circes.
0: Wow, that sounds really pretty. Doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we are into a (laughs) lagostromia season, the crepe myrtle. And I see that you have one here too, um, Enduring Red. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So, this one has been one of the best selling red tree varieties on the market, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Um, It's pretty well known by our growers. It's been out there for probably since before 2016. And, you know, it can get up to, you know, 12 to 14 feet. It has that beautiful exfoliating bark that you were looking for in a lag. Um, And then it just has these fire engine red flowers. It really is probably the best kind of that true like scarlet red color that I've seen on a crepe myrtle. Really good powdery mildew resistance too. So you're not having to combat that. Can't speak to the scale. I don't know about that yet, though. There are some universities uh, testing for that on lags. But this one's done well all the way, you know, all the way down to Florida. And then also all the way up to, it's borderline about six. Um, so probably Maryland would be where we would cut that off at. Um, and it's done what really well on the West coast as well. We have it out there at our California production station as well.
0: I've seen neighbors around here have it. And I had to stop my car cause I saw this red Lagostromia and I was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Now that's not that it looked a lot different than red rooster because red yeah. rooster has that comby kind of effect. And this one here is just bright red. And I, I was yeah. really pretty impressed with it. And so here's another thing. These plants are really great in areas where you have a microclimate where it might be hotter, especially in the city. Mm. I've seen it used very well. And when I was down in Texas uh, for a Garden Communicators event, they had a patio interplanted with uh, lagostromia And that was the canopy of the of the patio so that you didn't have to have a tent. You had the arms of the the crepe myrtle touching one another, kind of creating that canopy. And it was very cool underneath there, Mm -hmm. especially on a hot day of 104. We were actually talking about this the other day. We were in Dallas at 104 and it was so stinking hot. Humidity was really high. And we walked underneath these lagistermias and we were like, oh my gosh, it's like 20 degrees cooler under here. It's great. But they are really nice plants and they're sturdy and they do well. And again, these can be planted in
2: the city. Yeah, like you said, that definitely seems like once you start getting into like zone 6A and pushing a little bit into maybe five, I do see them still. But it really does seem to be kind of a protected area or, you know, they do best when they're somewhere that's a microclimate. But if you can make it work, I mean, the bark and the flowers are just worth it.
0: They, they are i I would totally agree with that, and you know sometimes you may have a really bad winter where it gets to be really cold, and sometimes you might have a little frost damage, but that could be trimmed out very easily and for this tree itself it's it's worth every penny to have that in the garden and i we had an old neighbor, and I don't don't live in that neighborhood anymore, but I passed by, and he planted a uh crepe myrtle years ago and it was you know you put it in the ground it was only like four feet tall it is now like 25 feet tall and it is stunning <sighs> when you drive by it's a it's a pinky mauve color but it's stunning and just the visual at this time of year when when things are starting to finish up their bloom except except for annuals and some perennials you know you, you have that on top of the, the tree up up high where your eye can actually see it it really makes a huge difference
2: yeah, and I'm I'm happy to say that around here I have not seen people perform crepe murder, which oh, is the terrible trimming.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. And that's, I, I think that came from, because they didn't believe that there were other sizes. And there's this lack of knowledge, and I'm glad you brought that up. I talk about that all the time. Please do not commit crepe murder on these plants. They do not deserve to be treated uh, brutally they very rarely need to be pruned unless you have a crisscrossing branch or something like that, or something that, like I said, dies back a little bit because of the, the cold. But other than that, you really don't have to do anything to these, but people insist and want to cut the tree half down and leave these big stalks standing there with nothing on them. It's crazy. Yeah. It's very weird looking. <laughs> it is. It's very weird looking and it's and it's just not hap- It's not good for the tree. It's just not good for no. the tree.
1: What's next on the list?
0: You've got um, Prunus purple plunge, which sounds really cool. Is that the right
1: pronunciation?
0: Yes, Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Purple plunge.
2: Uh, You know, it sounds like somebody going into a pool.
0: You know, it's a cool pool kind of thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so you brought up water again. It's another weeper. (laughs) Oh, it is. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense then. It's a sericifera. So, like, if you're familiar with uh, Prunus thundercloud... Yes. It's a weeping form of that. So it's got that great burgundy foliage Mm -hmm. and then the really nice light pink spring flowers, but in a really nice weeping form. So you can kind of trim it. So you have that umbrella weeping look, or you can let it go and fill out its skirt. The other nice thing about this one is that sometimes the Saracifera tend to have leaf spot problems, depending on your climate or the growers. This one so far has seemed to be more resistant. So... That has been a really nice bonus for us. Um, And this is another one that attracts pollinators during that early spring season. And again, this is, you know, that great breeding program out of NC State and the JC Ralston Arboretum.
0: And they they produce so many wonderful plants that, you know, we actually can't really live without them now that we've had them. You know, you think about like, you know, the Hartledge Wine, Carolina Old Spice, gorgeous plant. So different than the species. So, yes, their breeding program is just wonderful. And what
1: one was that, Eva? The allspice?
0: Hartledge wine.
1: Heartledge wine. Heartledge
0: wine. Heartledge was the gentleman who well, I think he was a grad student at the time. Crossed it with the chinensis and crossed it with our native, and it's like a like a mauvy pink colored flower, and it's very fragrant. It's very very. Oh, that nice. sounds
1: great. And yeah. it's V
0: shaped. It's not. It doesn't spread like our, ours does, and that that certainly gives you a good fall color too. So yeah, I had one in one of my last homes, and I just I just loved it in the fall. Just it was, it was the most beautiful thing. Yeah, so let me yes, go back to this purple plunge. Would this be good next to, like, not smack up against, but near a door, so that you can actually enjoy that early spring bloom and that beautiful cascade foliage in the summertime?
2: Yeah, it would fit there definitely. It only gets about three to four feet wide, so you know it can fit. Be- you know, closer to a foundation, right. and then it's only going to get about seven to ten feet. But of course, you could control that even lower because it's only going to go as high as the grower trains the leader up the stake. So you know, it's really dependent on where you buy it.
0: Yeah, I think that's perfect. And do you want to explain that a little bit to our to our uh, listeners about the height on that?
2: Sure. This one and also Golden Falls Circus, so the weeping trees. When our producers are growing them, they always want to weep, even from a young age. So instead of naturally growing straight up, um, we are training them up a stake as a very young plant. So it's budded and then it's trained up the stake to a height set by us and the producer. So typically it's, you know, 48 inches or higher, depending on the plant. Golden Falls, we usually take up to about five to six feet. And Purple plunge, we've done a variety of things, but we've seen the same request is that that be done at about five to six feet. And what I mean when I say done is once it hits that mark on the stake, they'll stop tying it to the stake. So then the leader will naturally from there, it will weep down. Could this tree actually without a stake be a ground cover? I've never tried it myself, but I've heard of people saying that, yes, they have done that. Where they've taken the leader and like trained it around like the edge of a whiskey barrel or around like a deck and let it kind of weep there. I've never grown it completely on the ground to see what it would do.
0: I have a friend um who I know very well. She's she's a miraculous lady, she's a gardener. And at her property, she has a weeping form of cirrhosis and it has taken off like a carpet, <laughs> <laughs> spread across the ground. And when it blooms, it looks like this beautiful tall carpet blooming. It just gets to be about maybe 10 inches tall, maybe a little bit taller, maybe 12 inches. And it, and it is stunning. And it's coming off this post, as you're saying, and just trailing along the ground. Like, I'm just going to be wherever I want to be kind of thing. I was thinking that maybe something like these two could be put on a hillside and you know have the height and then let it sprawl across a hillside maybe with a few rocks and just have it kind of climb over I'm just you know visually I'm kind of thinking in my head, but those kind of plants are like, oh my gosh, there's st- everyone is so different because it depends on how tall it is when it's staked,
2: yeah, and I guess you know that that image that you just described, sounds like it would be beautiful. I think as long as it's well-drained enough, the site, mm-hmm. you know, so that the branches on the ground aren't sitting in too much moisture, I, I would think that they would be fine.
0: I've seen them on hillsides before creeping, and I just think that's an ideal location for them because they're still getting the runoff of water, but yeah, they drain well. And as you're mm-hmm. saying, not so that the leaves don't get wet or sit in water. Yeah,
1: Kind of a fun conversation. It makes me also think of uh, I've seen that happen with blue atlas cedar, where <laughs> yes. they really just yeah. take over.
0: <laughs> yeah, the
1: Spider foliage everywhere.
0: Yes, <laughs> and it's and it's beautiful though. I mean, it looks like yeah. it looks like a carpet. It's kind of like your creeping junipers that when you when you get yeah. the creeping juniper, especially like horizontalis, the one that was uh, found, I think, up in Acadia National Park and Blue Rug. I'm not sure if they mm. were one of your introductions or not, but. I know that they became very popular, and they're beautiful. They hang over walls and cover a myriad of ugliness, and I, I love them. I think they're that's perfect for for those kind of areas. And then the last one that we have here is Prunus Ruby Ruffle. Tell us about that one. I love the names. I think you're getting more creative with your names than ever before. I think that's really fun. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you. Uh, plant naming is definitely something that is not an easy task, especially if you want to trademark it. So <laughs> we have to start to get more unique, I think, the more time goes on. But Ruby Ruffle is an ornamental patio peach. So it's oh. a compact peach and it does produce fruit, but we're really growing it for its ornamental value. Mm-hmm. So this is, if you're familiar with the other varieties on the market, uh, Bonfire and Bonanza. Mm -hmm. Bonanza is a green foliage variety with light pink flowers, and Bonfire is a burgundy foliage variety with light pink flowers. Right. So we're taking the burgundy foliage of Bonfire and combining it with that darker flower color of Bonanza onto one plant. So that's what Ruby Ruffle is.
0: Wow, wow, wow. And I, you know, I've seen purple on peaches and they have that long leaf, which is so attractive as opposed to the short leaf that plums have. And it's just that long leaf that makes it even more attractive because, you know, because it kind of weeps down and I love peaches
2: anyway. So (laughs) what's not to love? Right, because it has so many different uses too. Right, And this one definitely has that leaf uh, that you like. And Mm -hmm. part of its name came from that long leaf has wavy margins that are really persistent. So it just, the leaves always look kind of ruffled on this plant.
0: Right, well, the purple-leafed Peaches are, if you haven't seen them, you need to get yourself out to a store or a nursery and see these leaves because they are so special. And, you know, I, spe- I used to spend a lot of time in peach orchards when I was a kid because we used to do a lot of canning and peaches. And we used to go down to South Jersey and all the farms. And there was just something about walking amongst the peaches that was just so yeah. cool. It was powerful. It's like, you know, the trees weren't real big, but yeah. what they produced was amazing. And uh, even if they don't produce peaches and they produce those fantastic leaves, I'm happy.
2: Yeah, I mean, this one still produces the fruit. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's mostly pit, but you could use it for like jellies and anything that you're kind of processing instead of eating straight off the tree.
0: Right, right. And and I think that's something important too when you have a small property, and this is not going to be a really big tree, is it, from what i gather.
2: Yeah, no, it's only going to be like at maturity getting to like four to five by four to five.
0: Right. So again, in a small garden, you could have something like this and still get not only to have the beauty, but also have the fruit and jam in the end. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's really fabulous.
1: One question, Kristen, what's going on and who's doing what with the breeding of the next generation of uh, like oak and hackberry and elm and, and you know, kind of our bigger conventional shade trees. And I realize that might not be uh, what you're doing or star roses, but it kind of jumped into my head like, hey, you know, who's breeding the next uh, variety of red oak or hackberry?
2: Yeah. So I'm definitely a little bit disconnected from the larger shade trees because we don't go after those genera uh, for our program currently. But I will say that even among the smaller shade trees and other shrubs, a lot of the breeders are retiring. Mm. And especially with these longer term genera, we're not seeing a lot of younger people behind them to continue. And it's pretty unfortunate, uh, but I hope someone is doing something with The plants you mentioned.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I hope our listeners are taking note. You, you college students, there, there's the next big thing. Throw a little AI into the mix, and you're going to (laughs) be off and running with the next great elm tree. (laughs)
0: You know, that's that kind of gave me goosebumps, uh, Kristen. What you said because. This is an area that is so vitally important for our industry, not only for our industry, but also from a standpoint, we're talking about plants that can endure higher heat, plants that can tolerate smaller spaces, plants that might have fruit on it that, you know, might be uh, provide some edible fruits. That's very disturbing to hear. And, you know, how can we promote how can we promote this and get younger people to be involved? Maybe every breeder has to have a, an assistant breeder working with him or her so that they will take on the, the mantle of of breeding.
2: And I know in the universities that still have their horticulture programs, luckily, most of the professors do have that. Uh, but I would love to spread the word about You know, don't give up on the trees and the shrubs and the stuff that takes longer because, you know, they might not be able to finish it in a four year study, but definitely seeing a shift towards more of the faster turn items. And we definitely need some young people in the woody and the tree side of the industry to keep coming up and taking on the next generation of this I can only speak for Ball, but I know there's a bunch of initiatives in the industry for young people. But if you look into, uh, Ball has a program called Seed Your Future Yes. for young people to get involved in the industry. So there's plenty of programs out there um, if it's something that your listeners are interested in.
0: Well, that's really good to know. And I I, I was thinking when I was working with Will Radler and the Knockout Rose, and I, I remember him saying that it's taken me almost my full adult life to yeah. get to where I am with the knockout rose and once you hit pay dirt you hit pay dirt <laughs> and it just keeps coming and that was in his case and I and I think that that's something that most people don't realize that once you get something that's really grasped by the consumer there's no telling where it'll take you and I know that the first Knockout had a second knockout and a third knockout and a fourth knockout and a fifth knockout and just kept going. And it was like Mm -hmm. a a domino effect. And I've seen that with other people too. A former student of mine who's now a doctor down in South Carolina, he was breeding begonias and he had a couple big hits with his begonias and he was, he was young. He was like 20 years old. And um, that's where, that's where we need to be. That's where we need to be. We need to have younger people. Um, be enthusiastic and supported by the older generation who are that are their mentors. And so, wow, what a what an interesting topic we can we can have an hour discussion on that. Yeah. But, but
1: thanks for yeah. making that point. I mean that, uh, like Eva just yeah. said, it's it is a wake up call.
0: It is a wake up call. Yeah. Oh. So we have to ask our question, which we always ask, and um, what is your favorite or group of favorite tree or group of trees that you know, really sing to you. Maybe they're spiritual to you. Maybe there's a special memory that you've had with a tree. Can you share that with our listeners?
2: Sure. So I partially answered it before. So Meta Sequoia is definitely up there. Um, and I finally was able to get out to the West Coast and actually physically walk through Dawn Redwood Forest, which was just amazing to have that experience. And then on the other hand, so I grew up in South Jersey uh, around the Pine Barrens, mm-hmm. and I just really have an affinity for you know that type of forest. So like a pine sand forest, any of the pine trees too, I'm just addicted to conifers. <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs>
0: I think that's really great. I think you're probably one of the very first ones, would you say, Hal, that said they're addicted to conifers?
1: I like that phrase. It's I love a more it. positive spin on addiction. Yeah. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so does that make you a piney, Kristen? Are you like what what do you mind telling the listeners where in the pine barrens are you from?
2: Sure. I don't think I can call myself a piney because I didn't grow up like in the Pine Barrens, um, okay. in that Wharton State Forest. Uh, but I grew up, you know, like 20 minutes away. Okay. Um, That's and close was enough. out there as a teenager and, you know, driving the trails and doing all that stuff um, when we were younger. So it is close enough. That's yep. close
0: enough to being a piney.
1: I'm a big okay. fan of the
0: Pine bears. That's awesome. It- That's awesome. We are so delighted that you've been on our podcast today and sharing such wonderful information. And uh, the last piece of information, which I think is really critical, but I love the trees that you you have coming out. And I'm sure there's going to be a whole myriad of other ones right behind these coming out. So um we'll look forward to having you on again and telling us what's new and and different and bright in the tree
2: category.
1: Yeah, thanks Kristen. Appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, thank you both for having me and, you know, being able to talk about the great trees we're working on and we will be adding new genera over the next couple of years, so we look forward to maybe be able to get together again.
1: Sounds good.
2: Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks care. again.
1: Bye-bye.
2: <laughs> Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited
0: by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.